You want to stick it to a narcissist? Succeed. <laughs> That's it. You stuck it to them. If you can think of revenge as you being your best self, that shuts everybody down. It's not the hope that the narcissist will get better. Mm -hmm. It's not the hope that next time, you know, the next narcissist I'll figure it out. No, it's the hope is around you are a better navigator of your own life and you had the wisdom to extract the lessons from this really difficult experience. Welcome to the show, Thank Dr. Romani. Thank you, Lisa. I feel like it's great to As see you. As always, back by popular demand, girl. Oh, thanks. The first time we sat down together, we spoke about identifying narcissistic traits. Yeah. Then the second time we sat down together, we went over communicating with narcissists, yes. which was very well received. Oh, good. And in those comments, I wanted to really see what is the thing that they wanted mm -hmm. after that. Like, what was the thing that we didn't fulfill? And the thing that kept coming up is, how to then act once you realize mm. the person is a narcissist and you've communicated and now you want to leave. Yeah, okay. And so I'd love to actually read a proverb that you yeah. said, um, to get lost is to learn the way. Yeah. So yeah. I really want to start there yeah. because I feel like when people are feeling lost, yeah. they almost don't know where to go. Yeah, listen, think about school. If the teacher just said, here's two plus two, Here's four times eight, and never made the child work the problems. They'd never learn math. Or they, if they didn't make them fill out a map, this is United States, this is Africa, whatever, they'd never learn geography. Mm. At some point, we have to do it. Now, when we elevate that to adult relationships, we think, why did I have to? I, I just went through this. I literally got lost. I got harmed. I, I lost people in my life. I lost myself. I lost my identity. What was that all for? And I do think in that way, these terrible experiences do become a teacher. I always tell people it's a balancing act, right? Nobody should ever go out and seek out suffering. Like, I'm gonna go get into a narcissistic <laughs> relationship so I can get lost and learn something. Uh -uh. No, 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 we don't want you to do that. And also, I think some people feel like a hurry up and heal mentality. Like, okay, I'm out of it, so now I gotta heal. Mm -mm -mm. I'm also not behind that. Grief and giving yourself time to sort of go through the steps, regret and rumination, and the things that happen after a narcissistic relationship are part of that cycle, and I'm never a fan of hurry up and heal, because I think some people then, having been so bashed by a narcissistic relationship, will say, great, now I'm even failing at healing. There's no such thing as failing at healing, okay? Each, if you're getting up out of bed in the morning, even if you're slow and even if it's later than you want, you're healing because you have the courage to face down another day, mm -hmm. okay? But that idea of getting lost, because we all, when we are in these narcissistic relationships, we get lost, that we've learned something. The key though, Lisa, the key above everything else is to hold on to that lesson and not naively say, well, that was just an exception and next time's gonna be different. No, 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 mm -hmm. two plus two is always four. <laughs> You know, next time it's not gonna be five. It's always gonna be four. You've got to learn from this. And it's hard because the lessons of narcissistic relationships can feel cynical, they can feel painful, it can feel like how can I trust anyone? And it's not as black and white as how can I trust anyone, but you're definitely not gonna trust people the same way. 
Ooh, okay, I really want to go deep on everything you just said because it's so powerful. So thinking about the person right now that is feeling lost, yeah. giving them the, the hope that, look, you can get out of it. And that's why yeah. I really like that quote in the sense of, look, you may feel lost right now, but don't worry. It can be a good thing because you can learn from it. You will learn from it. You will get lost. You will learn from it. You will learn that you're a better navigator than you thought. You may have had to go around that landmark mm. six times. You're like, I've seen that tree before. I'm going to get out of this because to get lost and then find you, you will find that idea of finding the way is that you're you're learning something from this mm -hmm. right that and that learning makes you more wise and you are able to see that no there's not something wrong with you it's not you it's really that this happens to all of us it happens to me it happens to you it happens to everybody mm -hmm. and that if you can heed those lessons you will then come out of it saying, wow, now I know how to use this compass. Now I know how to read this map. And that's actually a really, there's a certain confidence that comes from that. And you could not have learned that lesson unless you'd gone through it. So the, the sort of the hope message there is, it's not the hope that the narcissist will get better. Mm -hmm. It's not the hope that next time, you know, the next narcissist I'll figure it out. No, it's the hope is around, you are a better navigator of your own life and you had the wisdom to extract the lessons from this really difficult experience. Okay, I absolutely love that. So I'm thinking about now this person that's listening that is stuck in this relationship that mm -hmm. feels lost and is now, now you've just eloquently put of how they can use mm -hmm. that to actually mm -hmm. better their life and mm -hmm. move forward. So now I start to think about, okay, in communicating with somebody, whether mm -hmm. it's, you know, a partner mm -hmm. that's a narcissist and saying, okay, I finally want to leave, right? Mm -hmm. And you've got the courage mm -hmm. and now mm -hmm. you've listened to Dr. Ramani who has said, you know, okay, this is going to be a lesson. Mm -hmm. You build up the confidence. Mm -hmm. You maybe have some words that you're preparing to say to them. I actually want to talk about the traps that people may find yeah. themselves in because I'm the type of person, that if I know the traps are coming, at least I'm aware yeah. of them so that when I'm in there, I don't actually get trapped and revert back to the norm yep. of I'm lost, I'm yep. a loser, I'm in this relationship mm -hmm. and there's no way out. Okay, so let's start with talking about the five ways people get stuck in narcissistic relationships. Even when they're like, I know this isn't healthy for me, I know this isn't good for me, Let's talk about the five traps. Yeah. Hope, fear, guilt, pity, and believe it or not, comfort. <laughs> Start with hope. The hope is this is going to get better. Maybe if I wait another year. Maybe if we wait for them to get a promotion. Maybe if we make a little bit more money. Hope, hope, always almost future faking yourself, right? You keep moving your own goalposts. And it doesn't help that they're doing it too. They're like, give me another year. Give me another six months. I'm going to go to therapy. I'm going to... No, they're not. I just want to highlight that frame you said is so good. Future faking yep. yourself. Woo! So, and that's worse than someone future faking you because now you're, you're almost like falling into the same vat with them of saying, I'm going to give it this much time or maybe after the, no, today, you're going to judge today. Okay, so that's the hope. The fear people have is the fear of being alone, the fear of having to start again, the fear of um, doing things on their own, the fear of what if I'm wrong? You know, what if they actually do change? What if I, maybe it was going to happen in six months, so there's a lot of fear, okay? The guilt. 
One thing we talked about in that first episode we did together is not all narcissism is the, the big peacock strutting around so grandiose. Mm. In some cases, the narcissistic presentation is really vulnerable. It's, they're very socially anxious. They're always a victim. You always need to rescue them. So people sort of feel a sense of guilt of like, I'm not a mean person. I'm a compassionate person. I don't want to leave someone when they're down. Well, they're always down. Mm. So it's never going to be the right time. But that last piece, that piece, that comfort piece is challenging too because we really do gravitate to that which is familiar even when it's traumatic. Mm. And so that idea of trauma bonding, you keep having the same arguments but they're familiar arguments, that's very much the trauma bond. The justifying all the time, the think, using sort of magical terms like, I don't know, it's just something, I can't describe why I like them. I'm like, if you can't describe <laughs> why you like them and you're using all this magical talk, then there's something wrong here. Tell me why you like spending time with this person. I know it's a narcissistic relationship, but people are like, I don't know how to describe it. It's just like this magic, and I don't know how to describe it. I said, you don't know how to describe it because it's not healthy. Interesting. What is that? Can you go deeper and explain So this that? It's a big part of the trauma bonding experience because it's so primal, right? Mm -hmm. Is really someone going to say, you know why I like being in this relationship? Because they remind me of my invalidating mother. And they, the, the, the reminder of my invalidating mother is really just such an interesting place for me to work things through. They ain't going to say that, <laughs> right? So they're going to say, I don't know how to describe it. It feels sort of magical. And I'm like, oh, God, no, no, no magic. I want to hear respect, kindness, compassion, similar values, similar Ooh. interests. I feel safe. I want to hear that stuff, yeah. OK? So all of that stuff, though, in a trauma-bonded relationship, sadly can feel like comfort because familiarity is one of the greatest comforts of all. Think about it. You go back to a hometown, even if you never want to live there again, there's a comfort in knowing almost intuitively the turns and the road and all of that stuff, right? We are soothed by comfort. It's the phrase, the better the devil you know. Yep. And then and the biggest trouble you have, basically. <laughs> so the, all of that stuff keeps people stuck, okay? But even once people recognize that and they're like, no, oh, despite all of that, I'm going to do the courageous thing. I'm going to step out of this. Then they step out. Okay? A couple of things happen. Most classically is the phenomenon of hoovering. Now, hoovering, and you know this as a Brit, is a vacuum, yeah, yeah, right? So you yeah. know it better this than Americans. Like, Americans are like, hoovering. It's, it's, it's a vacuum. Yeah. So it's sucking someone back in. Mm. And hoovering is a common narcissist tactic. Now, not every narcissist hoovers. Sometimes they move on into their own future thing without you. But many times they do. It's a power play. It's a dominance play. Mm -hmm. It's a way for them to feel in control. It's game playing. It messes with your mind. It's manipulation. But hoovering is when the person's left. They're already struggling with the hope, the fear, the guilt, the pity, the trauma bondedness, all of that. And then the narcissist, I don't know, two months out, three months out, even three days out, texts like, hey, babe, I miss you, or like, been thinking about you. And this, this sort of the fantasy version, that love bombing version of the narcissist mm -hmm. sort of starts to emerge again. And you think, Oh, yeah I, was, yeah, I was right. See, hope. Mm -hmm. And in fact, some people, when they step out, enjoy that sense of power of like, oh, if I step away from them, then they become nice again. And that's a trauma-bonded dance. In the relationship, out of the relationship, mm -hmm. in the relationship, out of the relationship. Recognizing that the narcissistic person loves games in relationships. They love the chase. They love the hoovering cycle. So some people really can get very vulnerable to getting sucked back in and almost enjoying the having the narcissist trying to win them over. Well, as soon as they get them back in, they discard them. It's like a child with a toy they don't really want. They just wanted to get it away from their brother or their sister, right? 
So th that hoovering trap is a big one for someone to be resistant to because every trauma-bonded cell in their body is saying, I want to go back, you know, and you have to say, no, 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 no. It, it's almost like don't walk towards the light in this case, like walk the other way, <laughs> whatever the other way is. And so that's a huge risk, okay? But then we have to add into that, Lisa, things like societal pressures. And this is where we talk about enabling. The enablers, to me, in many ways, are as dangerous as the narcissist. The ones who are like, oh, they're not so bad, or you just mm -hmm. got to give them a chance, or come on, the devil you know. And they'll say things that will not only attempt to sort of downgrade the harm the narcissist is doing, but then leave the person who wants to step away from the relationship feel shamed, foolish, like they're making a mistake. Because that person who's leaving the relationship is already struggling with that. Right. So if the enablers mm -hmm. are stepping in, and they're saying like, oh, you sure you know what you're doing? Then there, there's already so much doubt in the mind of the person leaving. So now this enabler is pouring all this new doubt in there. And again, there's a lot of shame around that. Like, who am I to think I could step away? Because narcissistic abuse really undoes a person, leaves them feeling like they're not enough, leaves them feeling like they're, they're full of self-doubt, they're confused, and they really start believing like, who else will have me? Who cares who else will have you? We just want to get you away from that person. But the enablers can really do a number on a person, as well as society. You know, like um, we're making this episode around the holidays, right? And so you got to be, you can't be alone during the holidays. I can't tell you how many people got stuck in narcissistic relationships for another six months because it was the holidays and they didn't want to stay leave because of the holidays. And I'm like, oh my gosh, just go get drunk under a tree somewhere. But like, <laughs> please don't let this be why you, you, you end up signing up for more. So you can see that there's, it's society, it's enablers, mm -hmm. it's your own demons. All of that colludes to make not only leaving, but even walking that first block out of the relationship really, really difficult. I love how you frame it and then also like I would love to get some like real tactics because mm -hmm. I'm always that person where like if I'm emotionally not feeling mm -hmm. like if I'm feeling vulnerable mm -hmm. I need tips and tactics to actually either do or say mm -hmm. in those moments to not then just let my heart mm -hmm. follow mm -hmm. um, get hoovered back in mm -hmm. basically mm -hmm. so I actually want to start with hope because what are the language that people say that narcissists will say to you um, to bring back that hope that you can kind of um, be wary of that becomes a flag. So for instance, I know that you've said when someone says to you like, oh, um, don't, it's never gonna happen again. So things like that, mm -hmm. what are the things that they're using to um, trigger your hope? It's never gonna happen again. I'm gonna go get therapy. Give it another, give me another six months. This has just been a rough time. Um, the holidays are tough for me. Valentine's Day is mm -hmm. tough for me. Your birthday is tough for me. My birthday is tough. They'll keep lin linking it to anniversary dates, holiday dates, mm -hmm. and say, let's just get through this holiday. Let's just get through the summer. Let's just get through the fall. Let I'm like, okay, we've got all four seasons, so we just <laughs> go in through. Right. So it's always this idea of let me get through this review at work. Mm -hmm. Let me get through this deadline. Um, so in essence, you're always being put on ice. Mm. Right? That's that future faking. But that's how the hope gets cultivated. Because they, they're saying, like, I'm aware there's an issue. Right? So when somebody says that to you, mm. I'm aware there's an issue, that fosters your hope. But basically mm. they're saying, and you're not important enough for me to adjust that right now. Oh, my God. That's so true. And then thinking about, I know a lot of women that have been hurt and 
um, are wounded. And mm -hmm. so they look for that in a partner mm -hmm. because they feel needed. Mm -hmm. I can help fix them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. even with, with the guilt part, I think that how, how does someone work through that? That might be one of the hardest things of all to work through, right? Because especially when you're dealing with somebody who's a very manipulative, vulnerable narcissist, they use their victimization as a tool. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, nothing ever goes my way. and Life is so unfair to me. And, you know, I can't, you know, who's ever going to want to be with me? Now, often even a vulnerable narcissist, their tactics are interesting. They'll even put themselves down. Like, oh, if you leave me, who's ever going to want mm -hmm. me? And if, some, if they're with somebody... And usually vulnerable narcissists are with rescuers and fixers, right? They're not the big, flashy, grandiose narcissists. These are the ones who are, again, very victim, very sullen, very resentful, very angry and brooding and all of that, that the rescuers will feel like, oh, God, like this is this poor person. And so it really is the work then becomes is to say your empathy and compassion are such beautiful things. Mm -hmm. However, I want us to take a minute and really list all of the unhealthy patterns in this relationship because what's happening is you're basically staying in something that's noxious that's unhealthy it's almost like being next to like a chemical dump site and smelling in all the chemicals or next to someone who's smoking a cigarette or something and blowing the smoke towards you that's not good for you mm -hmm. and so that idea of helping someone see that you can retain your empathy and compassion and you can also preserve yourself and your job on this earth is not to rescue another capable adult. That responsibility lies on them. Wow, that was so amazing. Thank you for that, mm -hmm. because I really do worry about those situations where people do just take it on themselves as mm -hmm. their responsibility. And you're 100% right that they'll lock it away. Like the phrase that came to mind is you, tr you teach people how to treat you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that phrase really hits me. And so when I think about things like that, it's like you mean so well. And that's the thing, right? People mean well. Right. And that phrase, though, Lisa, it's tricky. You teach people how to treat you because so many people were never taught how to be treated. Ah. You see what I'm saying? So I think that there's a real risk with that one because many people came from homes where they were invalidated as children, mm -hmm. where they were not valued, where they had no empathy shown to them. It came from family systems characterized by narcissism and antagonism and high conflict personalities. So nobody taught them. Mm -hmm. So this idea of they don't know how to teach someone else because they themselves uh -huh. don't know. I'm not even going to say they're teaching people. One of the key elements to remember about the narcissistic relationship, it's why currently the world of mental health is not serving this group of people who's going through narcissistic abuse well. Mm. We make it all about responsibility and we put all the responsibility on the person going through narcissistic abuse and they're already blaming themselves. But mm. the person who's behaving badly really is the narcissistic person. Right? right? And since the world is telling this person in the relationship, maybe you shouldn't leave or everyone deserves second chances or why don't you forgive, they're getting that message messaging. Mm -hmm. They themselves are confused. They've been gaslighted. They've been manipulated. They think all of this narcissistic person's behavior is their fault. Right. So you feel like that framing actually, they, 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 they will take on the blame, which Correct. obviously doesn't serve them. Correct. Yes, yeah, so I think this mm -hmm. idea that they have this person in the narcissistic relationship mm -hmm. thinking that they can take all this responsibility and have all this power, mm -hmm. they actually can't and don't mm -hmm. because this is so manipulative. Right. And even the mental health profession will say, well, like, well, what's your role in this? I said, this is like saying what someone's role is. Somebody gets punched in the face and said, well, does your face really need to be in the way? <laughs> 
So that's the challenge. That's really, really the challenge. And yeah. I think that ultimately so the survivor and the experiencer of narcissistic abuse will get their power back, but not while they're in the toxic situation. Mm. We gotta get them out a little bit. And, and that's why therapy with somebody who understands trauma, domestic violence, narcissistic abuse, like therapists who understand those things are often the best in the best position to work with these individuals because the focus is to not blame them. But unfortunately, a lot of times the conversation is about like, well, teach them. There's not, you can't teach, they're, they're inaccessible. They cannot be taught, they cannot be anything. They're entirely egocentric. So even if you try to teach them how you wanna be treated, they ain't listening because they have no empathy. No. They don't care. You're merely an object to get them what they need. Wow, okay. so it Actually, correct me if I'm wrong, so you're saying the real healing must happen after you've left the relationship. Or it has to, because again, I always want to frame this as not everyone can leave. Right. And I don't want anybody watching this to feel like, well, if I can't leave, does that mean I'm never going to heal? Absolutely not. Because I completely understand for reasons of money, fear, culture, children. There's reasons people feel like they can't leave. And those reasons are valid. I, get, I am very mindful of never invalidating the survivor's experience. So even if you're still in it, there are things that can be done towards healing. The key, if you leave, obviously the more distance and time, but I'm gonna tell you, girl, there are people who leave these relationships and their head is as much in these relationships as somebody who's physically still in the relationship, mm. right? Whether you're physically in the relationship or physically out, you gotta get your head out of that game too, oh. right? People keep giving away all of their precious mental real estate to the narcissist by ruminating, by having regrets, by looking at social media, what are they up to? Is the next person getting a better version of them? No. Mm -hmm. There's only one version. It's like narcissist 1.0. It never gets better. For the survivors, there's 2.0, 3.0, 4.0. You're going to keep evolving. They're always going to be the same version. The next person's going to get exactly what you got. If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal. Like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with hires as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing in a new stranger into your business actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply. Wow. So do you handle then the healing um, the same, whether you're in or out, or is it actually there's different tactics for both? Slightly different, but again, it, it's, it's really addressing things, like addressing things like 
rumination, understanding processes like grief, not falling into the, the, the sort of the vortex of what I call euphoric recall. Mm. Euphoric recall is remembering only the good things about the relationship. Oh my God, yes! So mm -hmm. why do we do that? That's a, that, again, it's part of the trauma bonded experience because it's the, it's the justification and rationalization. It actually kind of flies, in, it goes against what our human brain is designed to do. The human brain, unfortunately, is actually uniquely positioned to remember bad stuff more potently than it remembers good stuff. Mm -hmm. That's a survival mechanism that's in our brain. So, you know, if we remember the bad stuff, then we remember that was a poisonous plant, right. <laughs> that's a dangerous ravine, there's a tiger over there. Like, we need to remember those bad things mm -hmm. so we don't die, right? So there's, a, there's an evolutionary piece to that. Mm -hmm. And in fact, a lot there's actually a guy named Rick Hansen who wrote an amazing book called Buddha's Brain and does a lot of work in this area. And he, often says like one of the some of his work is on how do we almost retrain the brain to remember the good stuff mm. well in people who've gone through narcissistic relationships this is where the trauma bond creates this interesting hiccup they'll remember bad things about other stuff like being alone but they'll remember the good stuff about this narcissistic relationship it's often an artifact of childhood so for people who had narcissistic or invalidating or high conflict environment childhoods kids really don't have options so they have to tell themselves stories and give themselves rationalizations that somehow this mess that's floating around them is okay. Well, mommy really loves me. She's just really busy. And daddy really loves me because remember that one day he took me to throw a baseball after 200 days of yelling at you. You know, so they, the child has to mine those, those good experiences out of it to survive. Right? Well, that experience then jumps into adulthood. That's that trauma bond. It's a long-term experience. And so in adulthood, the more toxic the relationship, the more the trauma-bonded person says, like, but we had that great night in Miami, or they did get me that nice present that one Christmas 30 years ago. You know, and then they will forget all the abuse, yelling, invalidation, gaslighting, infidelity, lying, whatever it is. And that's why one of the things I do with people as part of their healing journey as I have them make a list. I've, I've colloquially called it the ick list. I don't know, I've called it something else, but it's like ick. And I said, I need you to write down every terrible thing they did to you. And if you can't remember it all, I need you to call friends. I need you to go through your calendar. I need you to look up anniversary dates. I need every bad thing written down. And some people are like, I don't want to do this. This makes me sick. And I said, it makes you sick because we're cutting the trauma bonds. Yeah. You have to, this is like putting up an ugly mirror in front yeah. of you and saying, this is what this relationship was. And every time you want to go into that euphoric recall, I need you to look at that list. I actually really like the ask other people like mm -hmm. that may have been mm -hmm. there because we, even if we do address it sometimes because we don't want yep. to actually admit, yep. even like just kind of projecting myself. I was in a um, bad relationship before I met my husband. I was young. I had never really had a boyfriend before. I was teased for my look. So finding a guy that liked me was so important mm -hmm, and like mm -hmm. literally gave me validation, gave me yep. the confidence. And so it was a very unhealthy relationship. So a lot of what you're saying is like, oh yeah, he did that. Oh yeah, he did mm -hmm. that. You know, you're never gonna find anyone that loves you as much as I, that, as right. I love you and all of those sorts of things. And then starting to think about, um, I absolutely was like, oh my God, but he's paid for dinner that one time and he bought me the teddy that one time in four years. Mm -hmm. And I, so I totally understand what it feels like to be in that situation. Um, and then just trying to come out of it and break out of what they have taught you. Mm -hmm. I think you call it the infecting, mm -hmm. what they've infected mm -hmm. you with. Mm -hmm. 
what they've infected you with because it becomes a belief system mm -hmm. that you have mm -hmm. within yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I'd actually love to really talk about that, about how like if, at least for myself, when I'd noticed I was in these, um, this relationship afterwards, there were triggers that I took with me. So how do we start to um, tear down that, like the triggers that we've built up from this, this um, unhealthy relationship, the defense mechanisms that we've built mm -hmm. up, so that when we go into another relationship, right. that we don't then bring mm -hmm. those bad habits that we've built to, to protect ourselves, mm -hmm. that we actually don't do that in the new relationship right. because it won't serve us. So number one, something I call the 12-month detox. After you leave any form of even approximating a narcissistic relationship, you gotta be single for a year. And I mean single, no dating, no sex, no nothing. And people are like, why? I'll say because when you're in a narcissistic relationship, you lose yourself. Mm -hmm. People lose track of their own preferences, what they like to watch on TV, what they like to eat. They've learned to censor themselves so much that they don't know how to uncensor themselves. They, they forget who they are. Maybe they never even learned it in the first place. Mm -hmm. A lot of people very quickly want to get into another relationship and the quicker they do that, then they're not going to do that deep dive, figuring out their own inner worlds, and then they're going to literally reproduce that cycle with the next person. Mm -hmm. Unless you get super lucky, and the next person you meet is just a superstar, kind, loving person, but I got to tell you, if you haven't worked out all that trauma-bonded stuff, you're probably going to look at the super kind person and say, kind of boring, not very interesting, and actually start poking holes in them because they're not evoking that trauma-bonded sort of sizzle, if you will. That year alone to me is everything. Because I want a person to go through a year of holidays, birthdays, anniversaries, the leaves turning color, snow falling, rain falling, and have to experience that on their own. Their own experience of it. Not someone telling them about it, not someone making fun of them about it. I want you to go out to dinner alone and order what you want. And, and people are like, oh my gosh, this feels so lonely. And then I tell them, does it? Because I want you to remember when you sat in this restaurant and they were sitting there and humiliating you. Does this dinner feel better? Because I'm guessing it does. But you want to romanticize that night you were there with them. But let's really talk about what that was. God damn, that's so true. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I almost call it a trauma tour. But I do think that it, for me, like sort of like I would love to take some of my clients to the places that have caused them the most harm. I actually remember working with one person who her, um, her, her former partner would make fun of certain dishes she cooked. And she loved making them. He, and, she, and so I said, you're gonna make a meal of all the foods he hated and have a bunch of people over to eat it. She did. One person was telling me, he, they were the partner, they had an ex-partner who hated films with subtitles. Like this is the stupidest thing. And this person happened to love, I know it was French films or something like that. I said, you need to have a French film festival. And like every night you're gonna watch French films. But it's even little things like mm -hmm. asking people to pay attention. They'll say, oh, I feel so lonely in the airport or I so feel so lonely in the hotel room. I'm like, okay. So let, I, cause I, as a therapist, you kind of have to have a really steel trappy kind of mind and say, I do remember two years ago, you telling me how he mm -hmm. screamed and humiliated you all the way down the concourse as you walked to your gate and then yelled at the gate agent, which completely embarrassed you. Do you remember that? Now tell me how this airport experience feels like, I'm actually having a really good airport experience. Yes, you are. That's the breaking the trauma bond.
I love it. The trauma tour, you said? Yeah, the trauma tour. Like, I, I, for people who can do so safely, and I mean this, and I almost shouldn't use the word trauma. I think almost like the discomfort tour because I never want because I know for some people trauma might be physical assault and things like that. Mm. might require more help to go to those places. Mm. But if it was something more like psychological abuse, like you were being humiliated, yelled at, um, I remember once, you know, I had been in, in a narcissistic kind of a situation and the person really, really, really um, just upbraided me and, and humiliated me in this bar. I've never gone back and I've driven by it and I actually felt sick and I thought to go into that bar maybe with a bunch of friends and I would say to someone, like let's say it was a restaurant you went to and the, that's the place you learned that your husband was cheating on you, your wife was cheating on you, that it was there that you had the conversation about um, how they lied to you about this or they screamed at you. I would like to see you go back to that restaurant mm. with your best buddies or go alone if you feel up to it, but go with someone you feel safe with and have the best time. It's a way to sort of feel like I'm taking my life back, but all of that has to be done not in a relationship. There's something very unique about the intimate mm -hmm. relationship that pulls for all that trauma-bonded stuff. A lot of people don't like this guidance. In fact, some people have said uh, to my own clients, they're like, your therapist is a hack. Like, you need to go out there and fall in love. You need a rebound person. <laughs> I, don't, I really don't believe it. I think people who've been through narcissistic relationships, they that solitude is so healing. This isn't about loneliness. This is about you recognizing you're such a great person to spend time with mm -hmm. and you were told for years that you're not. And I and and it takes people a minute. And it doesn't mean not friends. I mean, you want to do things with friends. In fact, a lot of people when they're in narcissistic relationships get isolated from friendships. Mm -hmm. They get isolated from beloved family members. Reconnect with them. It's almost like some of the processes you see even in 12-step programs like if to make amends. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not about necessarily making amends but saying I've been terrible about being in touch. I was in this abusive relationship, whatever. Can I'd love to, can we start again? Some people might say no. They're like, you disappeared years ago. And that's part of the wound of the, mm. of the people you lose. But many people say, of course. And you start recognizing like, wow, I can laugh out loud with this friend. My ex-person used to criticize me or tell me this friend was no good. And you realize this friend always did have your back. They were just trying to isolate you so they'd have more power over you. So it's about taking your life back. To me, that time of becoming reacquainted while you're not in a relationship is where you find out that your legs can stand on their own. Mm -hmm. And then when that <coughs> next person comes around and says, I don't like subtitles, and you say, well, then this isn't going to work for me. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Um, so it actually, as you was talking, I was wondering, so that restaurant thing, I actually totally understand. You get like the anxieties, you're mm -hmm. like driving past mm -hmm. because it just brings mm -hmm. up the memories. Mm -hmm. And so I love to like go with your friend, mm -hmm. have a great mm -hmm. time. Do you actually advise though when you're there to talk about what happened there? Or is it like you I actually you, shouldn't talk about it? I want about? you to have fun. I, I mean, I think that you'll have an internal process of looking around and you might even wow. think like, think about it. Like, let's say, let's say this is a restaurant, yeah. okay? you and I are like, and we're having an abusive relationship. Maybe during that abusive, like you screaming at me and gaslighting me and yelling at me and whatever, I fixated on that tree in the corner. Because you know, that's what a lot of people do. And the narcissist is <clears throat> like just psychologically banging them up. They'll often, they, I've, I've seen this happen a lot. The person just sort of focuses on something else. And they're just sort of staring at the tree or the wall. Now, let's say you go back to that restaurant, you see that tree it may really bring up some strong feelings for you because that's the tree you were staring out of the wall or the decoration or whatever. It's okay. It's okay. If it feels okay to talk about it, talk about it. It is gone. That thing that harmed you, that person's not in the restaurant with you anymore. Mm -hmm. Your feelings will not kill you. They will not break you. 
trust them to flow through you. Like your, your memory systems are holding on to something. And you can look at that tree and say, I remember this. And you can self-talk and say, they're not here anymore. They're not saying these things to me anymore. I'm here. I'm safe. You can say those things out loud and have a friend with you there mm -hmm. that can, won't say like, what are you doing? Who are you talking mm -hmm. to? And say, like, have that person be there or do it alone. You know, I've done that. I've been in situations like, no one's yelling at me right now. Wow, this is really, I'll be, I'll be walking through an airport talking to myself. So maybe <laughs> people will be judging me and I'm sure they are, but I've done that. Mm -hmm. But in that situation, who cares, right? You're working on yourself. Yeah, and, and I'm like, I'm good, like thing. I'm safe. No one's yelling at me now. Yeah. And you're like, wow, sometimes I've even cried. You know, and is that like cathartic? It's, it's cathartic. You? You're letting it go, and mm -hmm. and I've I've seen people have said like whether it's cooking all the dishes they didn't like, or w watching the movie they wouldn't want you to watch, or just laughing with friends in a silly way, or whatever, celebrating on a holiday in a specific way. Um, that that you, it's important not that you just do it, but you stop and realize, pay attention to how different it feels yeah. to be doing this without someone screaming at you humiliating you, berating you, and devaluing you. Oh my God, yeah, like as you were talking, I remember actually, <clears throat> it really hit me when you were saying it, that there were certain clothes that my ex-boyfriend used to have a heart attack, basically calling me like a slut because mm. I was wearing shorts, you know, and things like that. So of course you then don't wear them Bingo. because you're like, I, mm -hmm. but I love him, I want him to love mm -hmm. me too. And so it's just a pair of shorts, mm -hmm. right? And so that, of course, is never just a pair of shorts. Um, and I actually remember when I finally broken up, bro broke up with him being like, can I wear those? And it was like the hesitation yep. because he, he had so trained me to think you can't wear them. Correct. And I'm so glad you brought that up because that idea of controlling what someone wears, controlling their makeup and all that, that's actually a really dangerous dynamic. It's a very abusive dynamic, mm -hmm. a very controlling dynamic. And so, A, if that's happening to someone, someone's like, you have to dress this way. To, that to me is like 50 red flags that you're being abused, number one. But number two, as part of that healing, that 12-month process, as I'm talking about, you go and wear what you like. Mm. And, and you, but see, here's the thing, Lisa. It's not as simple as I'm putting on the shorts, I'm putting on the makeup. Mm. It's paying attention to how you feel. Like, I can wear my shorts. Mm. I'm out in my shorts. No one's yelling at me. You've got to mm. go through that sequence. So now you're like, you're creating a new neural pathway. You're creating this like, I'm wearing shorts and it feels so good to not get yelled at because then you're not romanticizing that, I, you know, I'm saying mm. that abuse, like uh, somebody controlling me okayness, you're trying to break all of that way of thinking like, I love wearing my shorts or I love wearing my makeup or I love wearing these crazy hangly, hanging dangly earrings, all kinds of things that people are made fun of for wearing that you're out there and you're like, this feels so good to wear these things that I like wearing. Nobody's making fun of me. You have to go through that whole processing sequence. It's not just about wearing the shorts. It's really being mindful and talking and thinking about, even if you're talking to yourself, but what it feels like to do that. Oh my God, that's so powerful. Mm -hmm. And is, like, is that because you're then rewiring the mm -hmm. thoughts that mm -hmm. you're having and yep. then over time, the more yep. you wear the shorts, mm -hmm. you keep telling right. yourself that, you're rewiring the narrative. It feels you good. Have. These things are my shorts, what I want to wear. This is authentically mm -hmm. me. I feel good in these. You know, that this is, that, that no one's telling me what to do or how to do it. It, it feels really, really good. And mm -hmm. you take yourself back. The more you take yourself back, then when you meet people in the future, you might focus on things like respect, kindness, compassion, shared interests versus falling into that trauma bonded trap of I have to win them over or you know what I'm saying all the things that like that take you back to childhood of 
I'm not enough, so I have to win this person over. And, and there's one video I recently put out on YouTube where I talk about the difference between being desired and cherished. And that is a really important distinction that's worth bringing in here. So to be desired is like, it's love bombing, it's dramatic, it's, it's being chased, right? And that's all the fairy tales people are raised on. To be cherished is to be valued, to be respected, to have someone keep you safe, to have someone be kind with you, for somebody to meet you halfway, or that sometimes you meet them more than halfway, but they're aware of that and they meet you more than halfway. It's, it's to be, again, it's safety. It's somebody holding you like this, like, you're so important to me, right? Mm -hmm. That's being cherished. We are not taught to hold out for that. And that's missing from every narcissistic relationship ever. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, what is the language then? Because you said like, you're so important to me. That's actually beautiful. That makes me feel cherished. Mm -hmm. But even with the value, I was like, I don't know if I would know the difference between someone like bringing desire to make me feel, feel valued versus bringing me, making me feel cherished to feel valued. It's things like, it's, it's respect. It's, um, it's valuing your opinion on something. It is valuing the things that you want to do, even if, the, and if they don't agree with you, to disagree with you even respectfully. Mm. So if you say like, hey, I, I wanna go to that little Christmas tree display in the town, that's stupid. Like, what are you, four? And you're like, no, like that would be fun. Like, oh, come on, like, let's just go to this cool thing. Like, that's not being cherished. Like, mm. it's like, I, you're, you know, you're my princess, but I'm not going to some Christmas tree thing. Like, I'm, I'll take you out to this fabulous restaurant, desired. Like, that's mm. like, you're my side piece. Oh. Versus, if that Christmas tree thing's important to you, inside that person might be thinking Christmas tree thing, but like, they wanna do that, that's cherishing someone. Interesting. So is desire more physical, like out, desire, outwards? It's superficial. It's it, it's still on the agenda of the desirer. Does that make sense? Desire mm. is driven by the person doing the desiring. I want you. I need you. Oh. I love you. I, I, I. Instead of, you really want to go see those Christmas trees? Let's bundle up and go see those Christmas trees. You. Wow, I never realized the difference. And it's interesting though, because even when you put it like that, totally get it. But before I heard you say that, like I was like, yeah, I really want to be desired. Yeah, I mean, it feels good. It's sexy, it's right. hot. But you, you're, I mean, I know your marriage, so I can say if you don't if you feel comfortable yes, me saying please. this. No, 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 I've been open. in the presence of you and Tom. Tom desires you and cherishes you, both. And I've seen more of the cherishing from him than the desiring. There's a tremendous pride he feels in your presence. So when I'm listening to Tom talk with you and we're, three of us are together, I see someone who has respect, who has admiration, who has kindness, who has tremendous boundaries. He cherishes you. If, he desire, if you can have both, well, then you hit the one. Okay, won the I wasn't sure yeah, if the desire not should be bad. Okay. You have to have the cherishing. Got the desire is great. I mean, it's fun, but mm -hmm. as the only game in town, it's not going to work. Mm, yeah, that makes complete sense. Okay, I'd love to start. You touched on it earlier, and you said trust. Mm -hmm. I actually want to talk about trust because I think that, again, going back to if someone is got the, you know, the, they've listened to you, they've really worked on themselves, they've got out of this relationship, they're looking for someone new, they're, they're spending the 12 months by themselves. 
I think the trust thing is actually very important because I think so many people say like I'm so scared to get into mm -hmm. another relationship mm -hmm. because I'm so scared I'm going to fall back into um, another relationship mm -hmm. with another narcissist right and you hit me with like a side punch one uh, in one of your videos where you said it's not just about trusting someone else but people have lack of trust within themselves mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah because what happens is a you don't feel like you could trust anyone but you trust your own, you you mistrust your own judgment you're mm -hmm. like I'm the idiot who let this person into my life I feel ashamed I let this person in my life so now you view yourself as the problem right you're like damn like I have no judgment mm. and so the the fear is I'm going to make this mistake again right so I, I want you, the best example I can give is if your house was burglarized okay and you locked the doors and this and that but there was this one little breach so then you get out go out and you spend thousands of dollars on a state-of-the-art alarm system you got 20 cameras and motion sensors and glass breaking this and alarms that can be operated from space and all of that stuff right it's probably more than especially if you live in sort of a really kind nice suburban thing it was just a bad luck of that one window being cracked right we tend to overcorrect and people in narcissistic from coming from narcissistic relationships mm -hmm. they tend to overcorrect they tend to put up the barbed wire fence and the walls and the fortifications and you know what I tell the people who do that initially that's fine mm. I need you to feel mm. that you have because I think when we say oh you're putting up too many walls I actually had that conversation with someone recently when I was sharing an experience I had they're like well you can't put up so many walls I was like the hell I can't oh. I'll put up all the damn walls I want and that's what I tell my clients you put up all the walls you want you can put up walls you can put up fences you can put up barbed wire and what we're going to do over time is we're going to help you have trusting experiences and little coil by little mm. coil we'll take some of that barbed wire down but we'll do it on your time I think that when people need to feel safe we need to help them feel safe instead of judging them as like well you're so cynical and not trusting Why? they just had they just had their house burglarized and everything was taken if they want 27 alarms on their house then that's on them we don't get to judge that and so people need to do initially what they need to feel safe but I have to say that when a person even a year out of a narcissistic relationship if they're putting themselves out even if it's not even just a, a, a romantic partnership it could be a friendship even or a workplace thing that they may throw back fish that are big enough to keep like they may overcorrect they may actually distance themselves from relationships that actually could have been keepers mm -hmm. it's okay it's okay mm -hmm. I think it's about giving yourself permission to say okay maybe I I hoisted that red flag maybe it was just a little bit light pink and I called it red <laughs> it's okay when people are saying they see <clears throat> red flags I want to validate that experience mm. but I've worked with clients who come off of long-term narcissistic relationships and they're very tentative like they're walking on ice and they're not sure if it's thick enough I'll say listen if you fall into icy water you're gonna die and maybe it is thick enough but I'd rather you didn't take that risk mm -hmm. so it's it's a process and so I think people do learn to trust Lisa they do um, I've seen it happen so I've seen so many people move into healthy romantic relationships marriages amazing workplace situations amazing friendships after coming out of narcissistic relationships there's definitely a world where you do learn to trust again but there's also a learn world where you learn to set boundaries and you give yourself permission to say not okay or I'm not okay with this something that that person could never have done before the narcissistic relationship the getting lost part again mm. that sometimes the getting lost is the only way to learn to say no I'm not doing this 
like this isn't okay you know or someone will be in a new relationship with someone they keep talking about an ex-partner their form and but yet otherwise they're good they're cool right they're really nice respectful they keep making this mistake and you might say I'm not okay with this so you go work on you but you bringing your ex-partner into these conversations all the time something's not resolved for you I like a lot about you but this isn't working for me that for a person who's just coming out of narcissistic abuse feels foreign it's not just about the trust of the other it's about that you have the right to set a boundary and that's about trusting yourself and so does that come first you have to trust yourself before you go out and trust I do others I again? think you do have to trust yeah. yourself you have, and and I think what happens is after a person's been through a narcissistic relationship they doubt their judgment right you see and I'm saying mm -hmm. so then you don't trust yourself mm -hmm. which is why you have to start accumulating experiences where you're like well that went well and that went well because it's very easy again that idea I was saying we tend to focus on the bad things you may have one messed up narcissistic relationship but 20 that are really working of wonderful respectful kind of like you got most of the relationships in your work life are working well this was one mm. bad thing let's try to break down what happened here but clearly your judgments great because you have all these other wonderful relationships in your life so we also don't want people to overgeneralize from the one toxic relationship when they are managing to have good judgment in all their others like I said we tend to internalize the blame on ourselves for the bad behavior of the narcissist oh god yeah that's so true and um, usually the person is like no you shouldn't be putting up walls you're just gonna be like mm -hmm. you're actually just gonna do yourself a disservice down the line <clears throat> um, but I actually totally hear what you're mm -hmm. saying of like, look, if people need to put freaking barbed wire mm -hmm. up, they need to feel safe. safe. You, um, mm -hmm. Is that the word that mm -hmm. you would use then? Okay, so they would need to feel safe in order to make that transition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that so much. Now explain to me though, how do you, how would you then start to break it down afterwards? Because the thing that I worry about is that people then stay there because they're like, okay, now I've protected myself. Right. I actually don't get dinged anymore, right. so I'm going to keep these walls up for the rest of my life because they've worked for me. No, because they aren't, because now you're not in the world anymore, mm. right? One day you're like, it's almost like you're looking out of your barbed wire castle and saying, well, they seem to be having fun out mm. there and I'm not in the fun, right? So it's, it's the doing. It's go so it's starting with small experiences. Maybe you go to a friend's birthday party and you and your friend has some friends there that you don't know and you have a conversation, it's a safe place, it's your friend's mm -hmm. birthday party, right? It has a finite beginning and a finite end. And you have a conversation with somebody new and they tell you, and it's maybe just a friendship, right? They tell you about, I don't know, their job or their car or this new appliance they bought that you're thinking of getting and you have that conversation. This is why journaling becomes important because then you might even write down like, met this new person today, had a really cool conversation about, I don't know, an air fryer. I really enjoyed it. I turns out they're from the same town as my grandmother. Like, and I didn't feel scared. A little bit of the barbed wire comes down that day, mm. right? It's a slow process and it does mean that you're right. You can't sit forever behind the barbed wire, but I don't know that most people want that. I think what they want though initially is permission to erect it mm. so that they can slowly take it down over time. Mm. Do you think they need permission to break it down as well? Yeah, I think so too. Like to say it's okay. Like some people say, I don't know. I don't want to meet new people. I'm, I'm like, I'm going through my own difficult time in my life right now. So if somebody right now said to me, come to, come to a party, meet a bunch of people. In fact, a dear friend of me asked me to come to a Christmas party the middle of the month. And it's an act of will for me to go to this. Mm -hmm. I know there'll be many people there I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I'm so, I'm really wrecked right now. I'm just going through a tough time. And, um, 
But I said, come hell or high water, Romani, you've got to go to that Christmas party. I don't care if this person happens to live in an absolutely beautiful place too. Like there's a beautiful view. So if I'm feeling overwhelmed, I know I can look out to the view mm. and all of that. And there's one very, very important friend of mine there who I know she, I feel very safe with her. Sometimes all it takes is one person. As long as I know she's in that room somewhere and I can get her eye contact, I'll feel okay. Mm. But And I know if after an hour I'm overwhelmed, I'll leave. Mm. Um, but I think it's the doing. So that, to me, it's an act of will. I'm like, uh, and there's one thing that might throw it off that night, but I say, even if you show up at 9 or 10 o'clock at night for 20 minutes, you are showing up. So you do have to say, and it doesn't mean I'm going to walk out of there with a new friend, but it's that idea of trusting myself enough that I can go. So these are baby steps. They're baby steps. And so how do you know then in those moments where you're like, actually, I'm put, putting myself in a situation that makes me feel uncomfortable. Right. So I actually shouldn't be putting myself in this situation. You know what, I'm not gonna go to the party because right. I know it's gonna hurt. Right, so the thing is here, like I said, one safe person. So if this was somebody said, come to this event where you don't know anybody, oh, hell no. There's no way, like some, for a lot of people, oh, yeah. I know I can say for myself, you know, a lot of people say no. If I can, can I bring someone? Can, so figure out a way mm. to make it seem safer. And then also give yourself that escape clause, like, it's okay if I leave after 20 minutes. Like, mm -hmm. there's no problem. Because you probably won't. Having all that safety, having the friend, saying 20 minutes is fine, you might just find yourself by the time you have your beverage, by the time you have your snack, by the time you talk to a few people, now it's an hour, maybe it's two hours, and you're like, oh, that was fine. And so I think that it becomes a, it, it's almost like working out. You're like, I'm gonna, not everyone wants to go to the gym, not everyone wants to do their workout and say, this is my workout. I'm going to go and I'm going to. Sometimes I even say start with silly small things like you go to the market, the grocery store, and you actually say to the, the cashier, like, how's your day been? And they're like, oh, they'll usually be quite surprised. <laughs> like, oh, my day's been okay. Okay, great. Are you enjoying the holiday season? They're safe people because that whole interaction is going to take two minutes. Mm -hmm. You get in, you get out, but you got to flex that sort of social muscle. There's lots of ways you can do it in low-stakes settings. Mm, I think that's really, yeah, mm -hmm. the low-stakes settings. Mm -hmm. And I love that you have a game plan. I'm, that's exactly what I'm all mm -hmm. about because I can't get out of my mm -hmm. own head very often. Mm -hmm. So it's like I need a game plan. So just mm -hmm. like you said, it's like, okay, I know there's going to be one safe person there. Mm -hmm. I know there's going to be a view that if mm -hmm. I get over-anxious, I, like looking, at I it. like looking at it. Mm -hmm. I've given myself permission mm -hmm. to be able to leave mm -hmm. absolutely in 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. You don't have to stay. Mm -hmm. Like that is so beautiful mm -hmm. to allow people because you're 100% right many of us can't don't want to go to a certain mm -hmm. and then when you're there you're like oh my god this mm -hmm. is this was great mm -hmm. and what was I worried about right. because mm -hmm. you get in your own head yep that's right that's right and you know again if you're 20 minutes in you're like this is horrible get it leave <laughs> and then you learn and say what was so horrible did you push yourself too fast on that night mm. were there people there that were making you uncomfortable was it all couples and you were the only person alone mm. so that means next time assess if a kind of event you go to maybe needs to be more of a mixed crowd are you, not, are you not as good at night? Maybe your social event would be better for you during the day. Mm. Like, pay attention. Again, this is where you're not doing this in a vacuum. Writing things down. Journaling is not just, today I had eggs for breakfast and I feel sad. That's not it at all. Mm. It's really looking at these accumulated experiences and saying, tonight I went to a get-together. I didn't want to go. But then that one person who was talking about their trip to Antarctica that I've always wanted to take, that actually ended up being, I learned so much from that person, and it was really nice to talk to somebody and actually not feel scared. That's a baby step. So it could be even things like um, uh, make, a, make a note in a journal of a successful social experience you had that day. Mm. Just one. 
I greeted the post, the, the person delivering the mail, and um, asked them if they're having a good day. I went to my sister's house, and I met her neighbor, and we had a great 20-minute conversation. Mm -hmm. um, I, we, I was in the office, was one of our first days not remote, and I actually went in and was able to catch up with the receptionist. It could be the biggest or smallest things, but you can see that, like, okay, I'm not this barbed wire person. Mm. I actually am kind of in the world, but I also am continuing to keep myself safe. But I think it's easy for a person to say, oh, I'm so closed off to the world. I'm like, no, you talk to the post person, you talk to your sister's friend, you talk to the receptionist at work. It's a process. So I think sometimes when you can see that accumulated progress, like I actually did talk to someone every day. I did have a nice conversation every day where I wasn't totally on guard. You start to realize that you you're not you don't have to pathologize yourself mm. as this closed off untrusting person, but it's the um, instead of calling it untrusting, maybe we can use words like wise or being willing to honor my instincts or acknowledge red flags. I mean, I'm the first person, Lisa, who will be willing to leave a dinner party if I'm offended by people's antagonism. Like, And it's been a long time since we've had those gatherings, but I will say something like, oh, you know what, I'm so sorry, and I'll make up a white lie, like I have a call from someone, I've got a jump or I'm having a stomach ache, to get myself out. Like, That's something for me in the years after different episodes of narcissistic abuse, mm -hmm. to give, say, you're allowed to set the boundary to get out. I'm not good, like to give you a personal example, I'm not good at setting direct boundaries with a person, but I am good at pulling myself out of unsafe situations. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I practice my boundary setting. And then over time, I've gotten a little bit better at setting it with other people directly, but that's still more of a challenge. So at least I'm learning to say, okay, Romney, you may not be able to like, boom, set this line in the sand with this person, but that doesn't mean you have to sit here quietly and endure an uncomfortable situation. You can give yourself permission to leave, and it ain't your job to school that person anyhow. Ooh, love that, because that's the thing. Like We get, <clears throat> we get in our own heads about, mm -hmm, I can't mm -hmm, do this. Mm -hmm. Oh, I can't leave. I can't yeah. offend this person. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, because like <laughs> when you're just like, yeah, and I'll just tell a little white lie. Like, I love how mm -hmm. you're just like, look, mm -hmm. if I'm if this is toxic, I will I'm get out of it, out. even if I have to do the little lie. And I don't want to hurt someone. Like, I don't want to say, I hate your friends, and that's why I'm leaving your dinner party. Yeah, because that's, that's the truth, yeah. right? Mm. You know, these are the most horrible people I've ever met. Mm. Rather, it's to say, oh, I, I mean, again, as a psychologist, you always have an out, like, I'm so sorry, I have this client, it's having this emergency, and I really want to go deal with this, or my child needs why? me. You know, and then uh, so to me feel less guilty, I'll call my kid on the way home. Like, how are you doing? Like, why are you calling us? You're supposed to be at dinner. But um, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to, because I think that to me, the alternative to say, I think your friends are hateful people, not great. <laughs> and then next time they invite me to that party, and those people will be there. I'll just say no from mm. the jump. You know, again, honoring that boundary for myself instead of saying, I'm going to white knuckle this and show up to something I, that I know will not feel good. Yeah, oh, I love that. I love how you set boundaries and you're just so clear. It's so beautiful. Um, one thing I heard you talk about that I really want to go into is revenge. <laughs> so once you've left a relationship, we talk about revenge. Yeah, so revenge to me is not meant to be like, <laughs> I'm going to stalk you, I'm going to publicly humiliate you, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to set you up to, no, it's, I am not a fan of vindictive revenge. Mm -hmm. I am a fan of revenge through you succeeding as well as you can. And that doesn't mean you have to go and start your own company or you have to go and save the world. It could literally be that your revenge is you found your bliss. 
you found your happiness you found your rhythm you got the cat you always wanted or the dog you always wanted or mm. took the night class you always wanted to me revenge is you taking yourself back because what the narcissist wants to see either a they don't care what happens to you or b they'd like to see that because you know a lot of people do after narcissistic relationships especially on social media they'll be like Ah, uh, you know, it, it sure is hard to spend Saturday night alone. Like there'll be the, the people leaving those relationships will sometimes sort of like, sort of in an unskilled way, but like, is there anybody out there? And I'll say either don't post anything at all, or if you feel the need to post something, say like, I'm so excited because I'm going to be watching my favorite movie tonight, or you know, I just watched this show and would love, you know, like you're in your life mm -hmm. and. And that sometimes that revenge does come through you succeeding brilliantly, but it has to be something for you. If you can think of revenge as you being your best self, that shuts everybody down. So it's not about the other person, it's not, it's it literally about you. is about you. It's about you. Yeah. That's how you get it. And so it's a very, because I always say to a person, you want to stick it to a narcissist, succeed. <laughs> That's it. You stuck it to them because now their whole narrative is you're a loser mm. and the only way anything's going to happen is if you stick close to me or in fact I'm getting rid of you because you're a loser right that's there there's this contemptuous like pushing people away but narcissistic people are very interested in successful people mm. so if you become successful now they can't have you anymore there's a little bit of revenge there I mean I can't tell you how many people when I set out to start my own business don't be silly who leaves academia that's ridiculous. What are you doing? Worked out. God, I love that. And like one of my favorite quotes is um, the best revenge is unmitigated success. Yes. Now, whether it's success in yourself. Exactly. But it's so true yeah. in the sense of I used to think about my ex and being like, I'm going to show him. Yes, but it, but no. it was very toxic, mm -hmm. right? It was the it no. was dark energy um, until I was like, you know what? And other people have definitely stabbed me in the back and the people that have not necessarily in a relationship but have very much done me wrong and they know it and I know it there's no secret they definitely stabbed me in the back very openly and I was so angry so that's livid that's normal and then in that moment though like after like a day later I was like okay I know this anger doesn't actually serve me and putting it towards them actually doesn't serve me to get better and only actually fuels them because they know they got to me. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. now actually my mm -hmm. reaction is exactly what exactly. they want. Exactly, so it's the anti-revenge. Yes, it's, <laughs> uh, yes. Like you're literally saying, you know. You're like, serving it up on yeah. a platter to them. Yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so in that, I, tr I then had to work on myself of letting go with the, of the dark energy, but actually leaving just enough. Oh, heck yeah. To push myself to be freaking mm -hmm. unstoppable. Oh yeah, I, you know, I, I've, t I've, tell, I've told this story, there was once somebody I had worked with, super narcissistic person, very disrespectful, very unkind, and I, I've talked about this, I, th I think in a video too, basically the person was, you know, th their, their take on me was, I had entered a, a position, you know, after graduate school, and I wasn't done with what's called my dissertation. It's like our big final piece of work to get our doctorate. It's a pretty monstrously large, demanding piece of work. It can sometimes take years. And so I took this position, and he said, and he's like, oh, so when are you going to get your dissertation done? And I'm like, oh, I hope to get it done by January. And he's like, that's a joke. There's no way someone like you is going to get it done by January. I was like, mean? 
So, and he was such a mean guy. And he was mean to everyone, but it was such a mean thing. Lisa, I said, I don't care if I don't sleep for the next four months. I am getting that dissertation done. January 17th of that year, I defended that dissertation. It was a brilliant defense. It went swimmingly. I had the most amazing committee of people who, who evaluated my dissertation. And then on January 18th, I went into work. And he's like, oh, hey, Romney. I'm like, that's Dr. Devasala bitch. I kind of got in trouble for saying bitch more, more conservative type. But I, oh, hell no. I was not going to let that man. I, I, and you know what? In a sick, twisted way, he did me a favor because I, it, it lit a fire under me. And I think every time someone told me no, for the longest time, I internalized that into my identity. You're a loser. You're a nothing. You're never going to amount to anything. You're no good. You're not enough. That's the messaging of my whole life. There was a turning point for me. I think the accumulation of narcissistic abuse got too much. I thought, how dare you? And I think things had to happen in my life. I had my children, like, I think major, and in some ways having two daughters mm -hmm. really pushed me to become like, you know, like Wonder Woman, basically. I'm like, you know what? I now have to defend myself, not for me, but for them. And for them, I'll always take the fight. And so I think that emboldened me in a certain way. But I'll tell you that so many people, so many, especially narcissistic people, you can't do that or you're not going to be able to pull that off or that's ridiculous. And so then it just became sit down, put your head down, get it done. Mm -hmm. and, and then I get lost in the project. It's, I stopped becoming about the revenge. When I was deep in that dissertation, I wasn't thinking like, I'll show him, I'll show him, I'll show him. I was like, now I'm in it. And the process carried me, and then I was done, you know? That's what I was gonna say, actually. Where is that fine line and the difference between you're doing it just to get revenge mm -hmm. yeah. versus you're actually using it as fuel to get the life you want? It won't work for revenge, because after a week, you'll burn out. Ah, okay. Yeah, you have to want it. You have to want so it. So the thing got you started. It gave you the push yes. to be like, this is your deadline. Yeah, and then you're in. And then you're in. Because if it's something you don't mm. want to do, it's not going to work, Lisa. It's not going to work. Like mm -hmm. I said, it can't be linked to outcome. It can't be, I'm going to write a book and it's going to be a bestseller. I'm like, forget the bestseller part. Get the words onto the paper. That's it. That's, that's a book. The bestseller part does not make a book. A book makes a book. Mm. Oh God, I love that. And then, so going down just like to put a cap on the revenge thing. So let's say, um, or how do you know then when you need to stop focusing on the things that they've said to you in the past mm -hmm. and kind of like let go because it seems like holding on to that yeah. to keep trying to prove it to themselves, even no. if it's something that you want, right. can just keep getting toxic and hold on to right. the wound. That's right. So I think that it is to the, the idea of getting, like the revenge being the success is that you were told for so long you can't, you won't, you don't have the ability, you're too dumb. The best way to break out of that mindset is to actually do something. It's something called self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is this idea that we believe we can do something. So most of us have self-efficacy for simple things, like we know how to boil water, we know how to brush our teeth, right? It's as we level up to things. Self-efficacy, like, can I run a mile? Can I... Um, you know, can I write a dissertation? Can I write a book? Can I make this deadline? Can I finish this degree? Um, you know, can I bake a pie? I mean, it's that. can I pre prepare a dinner for four people? All of those things, if you have self-efficacy, you believe you can do it, you can do it. You'll do it. It may not, someone else may not think it's a great dinner, but you believe you've made dinner, so you'll do it again. Self-efficacy is a call to action. So that's why it's important we do things, because sometimes we're like, I don't know how to do that. Then we do it, like, 
wasn't so bad. Now I've got efficacy for that, right? So that's a big part of if the narcissistic person lays down the gauntlet and is mean to you and says you can't do it, then you do it. And you're like, I can do this. Your efficacy building. Now I understand what you're saying is the holding on to it. I think things like the efficacy building, having experiences, um, succeeding in whatever ways you're succeeding, even if it just means getting it done, I do believe that that starts, you start caring less about the narcissist and you're like, oh, I can do this thing. And you get more mm. focused on the doing. It, I tell people all the time, my goal for everybody in healing from narcissistic abuse is indifference. I'm not looking for forgiveness. I'm not looking for you to become friends. I don't even think that's a good idea. Indifference. You just don't care. You don't care if they live. You don't care if they die. You don't think it, you care if they succeed. You don't care if they fail. You don't care if they're sick. You don't care if they're well. You don't care. They're just And so when somebody comes up and says, you're not going to believe it, such and such is sick, you're like, you might be almost like, you know you've come past this where you're like, oh, okay. Um, you maybe you'll say like, oh, that's a shame. They've got kids. But mm. you're saying it the same way you would if you read a newspaper article like, what a shame. This lady is sick and she has kids the same level of indifference. Like you're sad, like that's a sad story, but that lady in the paper is a stranger to you. So you'd have the same level of reaction. That indifference to me, when I see it in people, I'm like, my job here is done. You got it. So about a month ago, I went out for one of the first times I've been out in years, mm -hmm. <laughs> and this young girl came up to me, and she recognized me. Oh. And she came up and she's like, oh my God, I just watched your video with Dr. Ramani. Oh. And she said that it literally helped her. So she was sitting on the bathroom floor. Hmm. She was in a narcissistic relationship. She watched the video while she was in the bathroom because she couldn't watch certain things in front of him because he wouldn't you know, allow hmm. her to. And she literally was like, I was in the bathroom watching the video on her phone. And she was like, it made me realize I needed to leave him. Hmm. So where can people find you? Find me on YouTube at Dr. Romani. That's probably the place where like there's the most contained content. You can go to my website, which is also drromani.com. And on there you'll find not only a link to YouTube, but other seminars and programs and like links to my books, um, other things I'm speaking on. Like for example, it'll be a link to something like this that we do. You find all that in that one place too. The videos I do with you and podcasts I do with other people. Um, that's where you find me. I'm in, on Instagram and you know, we get stuff out there every day to just help people or share other people's content on narcissism, that kind of thing too. So there's other people, a lot of people out there doing good work in this space. So you can find me on all those places. Guys, guys. I got extremely emotional when that girl came up to me. And that was the first time I told you that story. I wanted mm. to tell you in person. That's how much this woman is impacting people. Please spread the word. Please go to her YouTube channel, check it out. Like she said, it's the most beautiful compass. People need to hear it. People need to reach out to the people that are struggling, share the content, share her stuff, start helping. And if you're not subscribed, click that subscribe button. And if you're not following me, follow me at Lisa Billu. And until next time, guys, be the hero of your own life. Peace out.